You don't have to be a professional chef to turn lemons into an amazing lemonade. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, we'll meet Travis Gleason. An unwelcome medical diagnosis brought his career as a chef to an end, but it gave him a chance to reinvent himself in a seaside village in Ireland where the slower pace of life is just what the doctor ordered. One of those, those rare places on Earth where the past is still the present. Felt like it was 1953 Dubuque, Iowa. Consumer travel advocate Christopher Elliott points out some of the tricks the airline industry likes to play and shares how you can come out ahead. Airlines have what are called waivers and favors desks that handle special requests. If you have a relative who died and you can't make the flight and you want to have the ticket credit extended for a little while longer, they'll consider that. And we'll share tips for planning the perfect European getaway in the year ahead. Let's do it. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. If haggling with airlines over ticket changes makes your blood boil, then stick around. Consumer advocate Christopher Elliott joins us to help us become smarter travelers. That's in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. And we'll check in with listeners who are excited about their travel plans for the year ahead. In 2005, Travis Gleason was at the top of his game. He was 35 years old. His successful career as an executive chef had him jet-setting all around the country. But it all came to a halt when he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. His MS diagnosis prevented him from working full-time as a chef. But it gave him a chance to fulfill a lifelong dream to travel to Ireland and reinvent himself in a small village in West Kerry. In his memoir called Chef Interrupted, Travis Gleason shares a story that can help any of us reevaluate the choices we make in life. Travis, thanks for joining us. Rick, I, I thank you very much uh, for having me. Now, you wrote in your book, which is just so fascinating, how MS took away a lot. It took away your successful career, uh, your marriage, sometimes even your sense of taste. Why did you decide to start all over again, and, and um, why in Ireland? That's a bold step for somebody facing this disease. Well, it was a bold step, and I had come to this place where, where everything had changed. Everything had sort of been ripped away, and Ireland had always been this tiny little kernel of a dream, I suppose. I, I grew up in a very white bread time in a homogenous little city in Michigan, and my, in quotes, Irishness uh, certainly set me apart from the time that I was young, though I'm as Irish as a, a mutt is a wolf. But still, that was the thing to which, which I, I held on. And when everything else seemed impossible through some radical treatment, chemotherapy treatment, et cetera, for, for the MS, I opened up a little window. My father has a saying that applies to a lot of things in my life, and it's, if you don't, then you won't. So I decided that I was actually going to do this. There's no better time when, when you were at that stage in your life. No, it, was, it was, might have been the only time that it, mm. that it was possible. When people have MS, what is the, the prognosis? What, what do you look forward to as far as how the disease takes over you? Well, you know, one of the things that I say is that MS isn't a death sentence in general. It's a life sentence. And so we have to figure out a way to live our lives. 
And for me, there was loads of fatigue and um, numbness. And as you'd said, I'd lost my ability at one point to taste sweetness and then another time to taste salt, which is all a spectrum of how we taste things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, MS doesn't steal away our futures. What it does is it, it takes away the futures that we had intended and, and had planned for and hoped for. So, But is there an imperative to get going right now because you don't know in five years if you'll be able to do what you can do now? There certainly was for me at the time. Now there are, when I was diagnosed, there were only three medications that were on mm -hmm. the market, uh, and now there are a dozen. And it has definitely come to the point where that can slow the disease down. Mm -hmm. um, I'm now a progressive MS patient, and things things are changing uh, mm -hmm. and not for the better. So it was it was definitely something that I had to do then. Now, it's interesting. You chose to go to Dingle, which is my favorite town in the southwest of Ireland. And why did you choose to live in Dingle and paint a picture of, of you in your new world in that corner of Ireland? It is a slower time. It's a slower pace. When I was there for a Christmas, I, I once said that it felt like it was 1953 Dubuque, Iowa, in how everything was celebrated. But I know that the, like many Americans who travel to Ireland or Scotland uh, for ancestral reasons, I know that the Ireland to which I moved is, it's 30 or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm there with, with my dog, Sadie, and I have my tweed jacket and a cloth cap, and I, I use a cane to get around, and I don't have a, an automobile, so I use a bicycle, and I don't have a mobile phone, and I know that I'm a poser. But if you cross the bridge near my house and you go back not a half a mile, that Ireland still exists. There are those tiny little pockets, and West Cary, Corcoraboina, is one of those those rare places on Earth where the past is still the present, and the smell of the turf in the air. Uh, I say it's the smell of of wet oak leaves being burnt on wet clay while we uh, sip bitter tea. It's just this sensual experience of the past at the very moment of the present. Travis Gleason writes about his decision to relocate from Seattle to the west of Ireland in his memoir called Chef Interrupted, discovering life's second course in Ireland with multiple sclerosis. Travis writes a blog called Life with MS at everydayhealth.com and his website is trevislgleason.com. Travis, you're a chef, and uh, you went to Ireland. Ireland is not famous for its cuisine and used to be the butt of bad jokes on, on pub food a long time ago, but how was your food experiences as a chef in Ireland? When I said that I was going to be spending a winter, you know, in this 180-year-old stone cottage on a mountain pass in Ireland, my chef friends just looked at me cross-eyed thinking, what are you doing? But in reality, the produce itself, the freshness of the vegetables and the seafood and the meats. Uh, quite literally, I would say that 90% of what we eat is is grown or raised or shot or caught or farmed within maybe 15 kilometers, maybe mm. seven or eight miles of the house. So the product itself is amazing to work with. I probably had the best single bite of fish in my life at a tiny little restaurant uh, in the town right across from the quay where, where the fish is landed. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the lamb from Kennedy's Butcher that I go to is just, uh, I know the name of the farmer who raises it. A friend raises ducks for me. It's the quality, the freshness is impeccable. Travis, you talked in your book very uh, vividly about the braised lamb shank cooked to perfection. So the, the shank is a, a, the forearm of, of the lamb, and it's, it works a lot, so it's fairly tough, not unlike also buco of veal in the Italian mm -hmm. dish. It's the shank. 
So there's a lot of connective tissue in that. And connective tissue takes time, heat, and moisture to break down in a way that gives this wonderful gelatinous, unctuous sort of feel to the meat and the, the juices of the sauce. And if you braise it, that's after you brown it, you have some liquid in there. If that liquid is highly flavored and maybe it's stout and herbs or it's uh, red wine or in stock mm. and things like that, it takes it on. So it's almost like the the perfect barbecued rib texture and it, it pulls slightly away from the bone, but it doesn't all fall off. And you bite into it and it's it's got this juicy tenderness that has to do with the flavor of the lamb, but this wonderful osmotic exchange of flavors between the liquid and the lamb and then back into the lamb. It's, it really is simple, magical food. It really does put you right there. It's that zero-kilometer kind of eating. It is. There's no reason to call it macrobiotic cuisine. They would just call it cuisine. Of course, there's some new cuisine and some fusion cuisine and some high cuisine, gastropubs and so on. But you've also got the standards, like the toasty. Tell us about the art of a toasty in Ireland. The toasty must be the national dish of Ireland, I really swear. So it's, it, first off, bread in Ireland tastes different. It's not as sweet. Uh, when you buy sandwich bread, sliced pan there, it's only meant to last a day or two. There's an old saying that the longer it takes to make bread, the longer it will last. Well, there aren't a bunch of chemicals and things like that in the in the local bread. And so it starts with, with white bread, and it's simple, wonderful local ham, and a bit of cheese, and some sliced tomato, and sliced onion. And it's not buttered and grilled like Americans would think of a grilled cheese. It's simply mm. put into a toaster, toasted oven kind of thing, and it's just... Mm. A thin, crisp edge and then this wonderful soft bread and saltiness from the ham and creaminess and richness from the cheese and then that little tanginess from the tomato. It's It, it really is a, a toasty and a pint is about as perfect a lunch as you're going to find anywhere on this planet. And uh, you add to that the uh, atmosphere provided by an Irish pub with the turf fired, the, the windows clouded with the conviviality of the village gathered inside. You know, Rick, it sounds to me like you're, I'm not the only one who loves uh, West Kerry, Ireland, the way you're <laughs> speaking of it. We're just running out of time, but I want to hear about your puppy, because I know from reading the book, Sadie is very important to you, and also Sadie helps you kind of connect with that reality of, of being a, a temporary local in Ireland. She is an, a soft-coated Irish Wheaton Terrier, which is the second oldest breed of, of uh, dogs in Ireland. And it's funny how many people don't know the Wheaton, but they're a farm dog who they varmint and they herd and they're great watchdogs, terrible guard dogs because they'd rather kiss than bite. But uh, she definitely is part of the, the persona of the yank on the bike with the Wheaton. That's, that's how I'm known in the town. And so, yeah, she, she is my grounding force and she, mm. she forces me to get out even on the bad days to give her a good walk, et cetera. And now she has a, mm. a sister, sister Mary Margaret is sort of what we call her. And she's, um, she's wonderfully nothing like her sister at all. I love this. the shot of you on the cover of your book, Chef Interrupted, with you and, and your uh, beloved dog. Travis Gleason writes about his decision to relocate from Seattle to the west of Ireland in his memoir, Chef Interrupted, Discovering Life's Second Course in Ireland with Multiple Sclerosis. His website is travislgleason.com. Travis, there's one place that you call your happy place, and it's happiest when you're with your dog, Sadie. Just to wrap up our, our discussion here, Take us to your happy place and tell us why it's important. Well, from the time that I first slid into an MRI tube, I was very anxious and didn't know what was going to happen. And I needed a place to sort of 
go to to collect myself and be calm. And I went to a place that had I had had in my head since I was young. And on the winter that I spent, that the book uh, refers to, Sadie and I actually found that place. And it was wonderfully nothing like it was supposed to be and everything that it needed to be. And it was uh, simply a, a collection of dry stacked stones on the side of a hill that bounded from the summit down to a hillock and then onto a beach. And and the smell of seaweed and salt water wafted up. There was sheep droppings everywhere. And it, there's a photograph in the book of, of Sadie, the, the penultimate day of, of our winter there. And uh, on that spot with my back against the wall and Sadie sitting in front of me, I promised her that I would, I would bring her back to Ireland. And it was a very happy day when we landed back in Dublin some uh, seven mm. years later, actually moving there on a mm. permanent basis with my new wife. And uh, I, I kept my promise to her and to myself. You know, Travis, talking to you reminds me that you found a good fit, I, I would imagine, because of the Irish love of the art of conversation and just to connect with people and share by talking. And you do the same thing by writing. And especially with the challenge presented to you to MS, this is quite an inspirational story. Thank you so much and uh, best wishes with all you're doing and with your with your writing and, and your book, Chef Interrupted. Well, Garav Minamahagat, as we would say. Thank you. Up next, consumer travel advocate Christopher Elliott helps explain how you can negotiate the pitfalls and changing trends in air travel like a seasoned professional. We're at 877-333-7425 at Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Christopher Elliott knows how demanding it can be to plan and enjoy a simple getaway without feeling like the travel industry wants to take advantage of you. He writes weekly travel advice columns for The Washington Post, USA Today, and Fortune, and the syndicated Travel Troubleshooter column. He joins us on Travel with Rick Steves right now to examine how to be the world's smartest traveler, which just happens to be the title of his latest book. Chris, welcome. Hey, Rick. How are you? Doing good. So, uh, your book is called How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. How, how can you be the world's smartest traveler? Information is power. That would be my beautiful. My few words of advice is the more you know, the less likely you are to get yourself into trouble. And these days, there's no excuse for not having information because you can find it. Absolutely. You just got to know where to look. Now, you've got your pulse on the main pitfalls for travelers are dealing with these days. I suppose it changes from decade to decade. How is that changing lately? What are, what are readers reporting to you? What are the frustrations and the scams and the pitfalls that are trendy these days? The trendiest thing right now is people accepting terms and conditions that they aren't fully aware of. For example, I buy an airline ticket. I think maybe if I'm going to make a change in plans that I'll be able to change the ticket for a reasonable amount of money. Not true. In some cases, you can't get a refund. You can't change that ticket. It's all in the terms and conditions. People don't always read those. And that's what keeps me in business is that things happen. Okay, but you don't have, when you're a consumer, you can't say, um, I want to buy the ticket for this price, but I don't accept this part of your terms. You, you can't. It's just the price is, is dependent on how expensive it is to change it and how flexible it is, right? So if you're going to get the cheapest ticket, you may very well if you want to go a day earlier, lose everything and have to buy a new ticket. Absolutely. And you don't, you don't have any grounds to complain. You don't, and, and you do. 
I mean, airlines like to say, and I don't want to pick on the airlines, but travel companies in general like to say, we have several different options. So if you want to have a more flexible ticket, you can pay four or five times more for that ticket. But that's not really an option for most people. Right. So you have to pick the ticket that has all of the restrictions. Mm-hmm. These are these are tickets that are basically aimed at business travelers, not leisure travelers. So most most leisure travelers are going to choose these less expensive the tickets. The inflexible ones, the, the expensive in, ones to change. Can you buy yes. the risk away with insurance? Sometimes you can. Because my sense is insurance costs about five or six percent of what you're trying to insure. It depends on the insurance, but you know, there's there's two different kinds. There's the garden variety right. kind that has the the named perils in it, and then there's the cancel for any reason policy, to, which right. costs a little bit more. Okay. You can, but if you're really risk averse, you can pay ten percent or whatever and buy that risk away. You can, but if you decide to cheap out on the insurance, cheap out on the cost of the ticket, that's just life. That is life, but... But like you say, it's not always black and white, so you can call them up, and then they'll probably have a frontline person that tries to sort all this out and and make sure people don't get through that. Is it reasonable for somebody to get through that frontline and actually find a little lenience? Yes, I think so. So I think think there are times. Well, airlines have what are called waivers and favors desks. Okay. Uh, Those are special desks that handle special requests. So, for example, if you have a relative who died and you can't make the flight, and you want to have maybe you want to have the the ticket credit extended for a little while longer. They'll consider that. And you know, I have cases where people have gotten very ill where they couldn't fly anymore or couldn't take their crews. And those are all you know, those, those are, are all so you can get in there and talk to you, they're, they're human beings in other words. I list on my website, I list the names and phone numbers and email addresses for all of the customer service vice presidents and for the CEO, and you can actually reach out to those people and email them, and sometimes they'll respond. And your website is Elliot.org? Yes, it's Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T-T dot O-R-G. All right. Now, I love airlines. I, I don't complain at all. I, I'm amazed I can get to Europe in nine hours, and if the food's lousy, I celebrate it. I'm looking out the window. I'm going 600 miles an hour. I don't want gourmet food on a plane. I just want to get there. Uh, but I'm a little odd that way. But I think you still have ground sometimes for wanting to be treated respectfully if something goes wrong. And I wonder if you're better off with a travel agent. Do you have more clout when you when you book with a travel agent? Absolutely. Some people should be booking with a travel agent. No question about it. You know, here's here's one that a lot of travelers get wrong. It's the dates. They're booking maybe a car in Europe and they, they get the, the date format is different. And so they book instead of, you know, for 10-6, they book 6-10. And <laughs> so they're booking the wrong month. And, uh, you know, if you're doing that for a hotel, you're in real trouble because a lot of times hotels are yeah. completely non-refundable or they charge you for the first night. So this, this is interesting that you would say there are cases when a living, breathing travel agent is worth the oh, yeah. they charge you. My feeling is if you like to book online, domestic stuff is pretty garden variety and you just go online. But international flights are a little more complex and it's nice to have somebody to go to bat for you. Uh, what's your thought on that? Depends who you are. Mm-hmm. I've dealt with people who are, you know, a little older and not used to the internet, mm-hmm. and they'll push the same button. For example, when they're they're booking on an online travel site like a Priceline or Hotwire or an mm-hmm. Expedia, if it doesn't go through the first time, yeah. they'll push the button again and make a double reservation. And guess what? Those sites don't have mechanisms to catch a double reservation, so you can end up buying two tickets under the same name. So really, the reason not to use the websites is because some people just screw up when they're booking. Absolutely. And that's it. it. It's just... It can happen to anyone. It could happen to me, that's for sure. (laughs) I mean, I use a travel agent. I would not be very good at booking a flight online. I use a travel agent, too. 
All right. Christopher Elliott's helping us size up the travel industry from a consumer's point of view right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He operates a traveler's help desk at his website, elliott.org. He also writes for National Geographic Traveler and several other newspapers. His latest book is called How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler and Save Time, Money, and Hassle. Now, a lot of people are, are going to these discount airlines, which are incredibly cheap if you know how to find them. But there's a lot of uh, surprise uh, fees and, and disappointments when you get to the gate. What's your advice on, on these incredibly, impossibly cheap uh, discount airlines that cannot be booked through a travel agent but are only booked online? You're talking about some of those discount European carriers, which mm-hmm. have uh, kind of knockoffs here in the States, uh, Allegiant and uh, Spirit that well, are, well, that's are true. really... It's nowhere near as, as exciting in the States, is it? It's Europe that really oh, is the option. Oh, well, it, it can get very exciting here too, believe me. Oh, no, I mean, I mean exciting from a price point of view? Or... Uh, from a price point of view, but also uh, you're saying price point of view. Yeah, I okay, say no, from no, an exactly. advocacy okay. point of view, it's oh, for... very, very exciting sure. things where... What, where a cheap flight is not necessarily a cheap flight. A cheap flight is not necessarily a cheap flight. Absolutely. And again, this goes back to what I was saying before. People don't read the terms and conditions of their flight. So they think, you know, and this is an assumption that a lot of folks will make, is that uh, your flight is going to include a seat reservation. It's going to include a meal if it's a longer flight. It's going to um, include the ability to check a bag or to carry a bag. And that is not true for these discount carriers. They will charge you for a carry-on bag. They will charge you if you want to print your boarding pass at the airport. They will conceivably charge you as much as you're paying for the ticket yes. to carry a bag onto that flight. Yes, absolutely. And you know what? It's a business model. It works for them. It sure. works for a lot of people who figure out a way around it. So to, if you, you know, really know how to go lean and mean, the joke is on them. It's like just going to McDonald's and buying a hamburger. They're not going to make any money. They make the money off of the pop. You know, it's funny because that is exactly the line that Ben Baldanza from Spirit used is he uh-huh. said that, you know, it's like, it's like going to McDonald's. There is a little bit of a difference because when you go to McDonald's and you don't like the hamburger, they're not going to throw it back in your face. <laughs> yeah. And with some of these airlines, you're given the impression that, hey, if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Go, yeah. We don't need we'll to. Fly. You, no one's forcing you to fly right. with us. Yes. And I think that's fair. I mean, the price is, if you think you should be able to fly from London to Barcelona for $25, you're crazy. You're playing a game, and if you do it really well, you can get there for 25 but you're likely to spend $100 and land in an airport that's halfway to Madrid. You know, and I agree, and, and that's the thing as, as a consumer advocate. You spend a lot of time trying to educate people and help them understand that there is no such thing as a $25 ticket to right, Europe. Right, uh, And that if it, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is too good yeah. to be true. But a lot of the other part of, of what I do of my practice is being the crying shoulder when someone has a problem and maybe trying to see things from their perspective and maybe helping them. You know, I, I'm the guy who is supposed to sympathize. That's a nice role to play, and there's a, there's a need for that. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Michael's on the line in Huntington Beach, California. Michael, thanks for your call. Hello, thanks for having me on. I have a question about uh, airfares in relation to the cost of fuel. Uh, over the last few years, the price of oil has been quite high, and therefore fuel has been high. And airlines were raising their airfare rates accordingly, which for the most part made sense, but the price of oil and fuel has been dropping considerably, but airfares have not. How do airlines continue to get away with inflated airfares? Excellent question. Actually, airfares are headed down right now. That's what everyone is predicting, so that's the good news for you. 
the bad news, uh, maybe from a consumer point of view, is that airlines are for-profit businesses. So they're going to try to charge the most that they can for the airfare. And right now, the market is really good. People are, are still flying. And so they can charge these very high airfares. What you kind of hinted at was that there are other fees that get charged, like fuel surcharges that are kind of unnecessary right now. And I think that that's that's a little suspicious if you have an airline charging like a $400 fuel surcharge when fuel is not really that expensive. Is that actually going on now? There are some airlines that still have fuel surcharges. What's an airline that would do that? Uh, Some of the international carriers still have the fuel surcharges, but they've been dropping them. Big, reputable ones, Lufthansa, British Air and so on. Yeah, they've all in the past had those. And and how does the consumer know if that's being done to them? They can see it, actually, when they're booking the fare. It used to be in in the old days, before the Department of Transportation got involved, that they would quote you a base fare that didn't include the fuel surcharges. And you had the option to add it later once and you got Yes, buying. they yeah. added it later on so you would see, oh, look, I can fly to Europe for $199. Then they would add all of their surcharges and then it would be $900. So that cut up that. with them and now they're no longer allowed to no, do that. No, you can't do that anymore. Yeah, that's great. Michael, I hope that was interesting for you. That sure was. Thanks for the answer. I, think. I appreciate it. Thanks for your call and, and happy travels. Thank you. You as well. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher Elliott, and he's the author of How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. And Steve's calling in in Bellevue, Washington. Steve, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. Uh, my question is, relates to travel or trip insurance. It was mentioned earlier. Are there any smart buying tips on travel insurance, or is it even necessarily a good buy or a must-buy? Every time I book a flight or tour, it automatically comes up as an add-on, which means to me that, you know, Obviously, there's profit in that, but the question really is, as a consumer, any smart buying tips? So you're talking about an optional add-on, is that right? An optional add-on, yes. Right. Yeah, my experience is it's hugely commissionable. Tour companies and travel agents make 30 or 35% commission on their travel insurance. Chris? They, They do, or even more than that. And I thought that was so, and travel agents pad their profit, and tour companies pad their profit by highly recommending insurance. It covers their tail because then if they have strict cancellation policies, they'll get their money because you bought the insurance, and it's easier for them to get the money and enforce their strict policies. But they make this one-third of the cost profit in this obscene commission, which was so overpriced. It is. Do you mind me asking, where are you traveling to next where you're uh, being offered insurance? My next trip is to Australia, and it's about an $18,000 trip. And the insurance is about $1,800. And interestingly enough, when I got the invoice back from the tour agency, it had the travel insurance right there as a line item. Now, it did say optional, but it was a big number. So they didn't actually add it, or they added it, and it was part of your subtotal, and then you had to decline it. So in other words, you had to opt out. Yes, you had to opt out. See, that's not that's very really... aggressive. They're just earning $600 extra off of you for this. And yeah. uh, if you'd opt out, then they've got every reason to say, well, you opted out, and they'll slam you if you have to change your plans. Do you mind if I ask what kind of insurance is it is? Does it have named exclusions in it, or is this something called cancel for any reason, which gives you a, a refund no matter what the reasons are for canceling? Well, it wasn't canceled for any reason, but it was pretty inclusive. So it included... If, if your partner had to cancel one day before the trip or one day into the trip, you'd both get all your money back? Yes, that's correct. So your partner breaks her toe one day into the trip, you both get all your money back and you leave the tour. 
Eighteen thousand dollars. That's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, one of the things I say in my book, "How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler," is that if you are spending a significant amount of money, you should consider some kind of an insurance policy. I would ask if this includes pre-existing conditions, because that's the big one. That's going to get you every time. It does not, uh, Christopher, unless I book it within fourteen days of my deposit. Mm. So you can't all of a sudden realize, oh, my uh, my grandma's health is bad. I might need to cancel and then buy your insurance closer to departure. Not day. unless it's within fourteen days of the right. initial deposit. See what I what I figure is, it's just an investment in buying risk away, and generally it's a one in twenty chance for basic insurance. So if you figure there's a one in twenty chance that your grandma's going to get really sick and you got to stay home and cancel, or you're going to break something, or or whatever. You buy the risk away, and you spent $1,000 for a $20,000 experience, and you don't have that risk. If you think you're hardy and you're going to do this trip come hell or high water, take the risk and don't spend the $1,000, but you're gambling. And if you miscalled it, you can't complain because you saved $1,000 at the 1 in 20 risk of losing the cost of your trip. Well, what I've been doing, truthfully, I've been hedging myself, and I generally buy about half the cost of the trip. That's a good option. Well, 10% is a little high for the cost of insurance. That normally, we're starting to get into cancel for any reason range right there. But if you decide not to take the insurance and you run into trouble, just give me a call and I'll take good care of you. Nice. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thank you, Steve, for your call. Good luck on your trip. Thanks. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Christopher Elliott, and he is a consumer advocate for travelers. He's got a a book called How to Be the World's Smartest Traveler. And Christopher, it is a fine line between emboldening people who like to complain because the most annoying people, you know, they just, you got to cut them some slack and they go through their whole lives like battering rams and helping people be treated fairly and respectfully. As a consumer advocate, I'm sure you get a lot of people that are just the squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of people. There's too many of those kind of people in this world, frankly, and that's how you and your living is helping them. <laughs> That sounded like an accusation to me. <laughs> well, what's your take on that? I mean, would you tell people just, it's hard to make money as an airline, and we get over halfway around the world for peanuts, or would you say they're out to really take advantage of you and you got to stick to your guns? I have nothing but the utmost of respect for travel suppliers, especially airlines. It's tough making money as an airline, and I have a lot of friends who work for airlines. So let me just say that. Uh, We have, and when I say we, I mean the various volunteers who work with me at Elliott.org, we have a fairly elaborate way of dealing with the habitual complainers. We triage each request for help. So when someone writes to me, uh, they fill out a form. We ask them for all of their documentation to make sure that they've gone through the steps and created a paper trail and made sure that everyone has had a chance to respond. We also have help forums. That address is elliot.org forward slash forum, where you can just drop in and ask a question, and we'll try to help you. We have volunteers there who help. But what I like to do is present only the most credible cases for mediation to these companies, and I don't like squeaky wheels I think that there are people who just complain habitually right. and and you have to give them a firm answer and say, look, I'm not going to let you play us yeah. because that's really what happens is that you got these media outlets that you work for and they're saying, well, I'm going to get you to write a story for USA Today about this. And you have to say, look, that's not how this works. Okay. That's a very good take on that dimension of the uh, consumer uh, defense service that you offer. 
Well, look, the travel companies have their own PR departments and they have lawyers and accountants and employees who work for them and flight attendants. And so they have people who are defending their interests mm-hmm. and lobbyists. So don't yeah. forget the lobbyists and in consumers Washington. need the same. We need someone. That's good. That's why I actually co-founded a organization called Travelers United that actually is advocating for travelers' interests in Washington. And, you know, we're just trying to make a little bit of a difference here. Christopher Elliott, thanks so much for what you're doing, and thanks for sharing it here. Thank you. Silver wings, slowly fading out of sight. Next, we're checking in at 877-333-RICK to hear what travel plans you're working on for the year ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A few minutes ago on Travel with Rick Steves, we got advice for being an informed travel consumer. So where have you been thinking of traveling this year? Let's check in right now with your travel plans at 877-333-7425. Steve's calling in from Cudahy in Wisconsin. Steve, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. Do you have some travel dreams percolating? Yes. For 2016, my wife and I are going to Ireland. We love the people. We love the countryside. We love the Guinness, the bread and breakfast, the pubs, and we love traditional music. Wow, you just nailed it. That's what Ireland is so great for, isn't it? It is. We even like the weather, believe it or not. I do, too. And one thing great about traveling in, well, one thing essential for traveling in Britain and Ireland is don't stay home waiting for the weather to be nice. you got to just dress properly and get out there, and you'll find the weather changes four or five times a day. It does. That's why you have to have appropriate clothing. That's what they say. Now, where are you going in Ireland? Well, we'll start off in Dublin, no surprise. But then we'll go to cross-country to Galway and the Aran Islands. And we are going to go to Doolin because that's a hotbed of traditional music. And uh, then we're going to go to Ennis for some more traditional music. I was just going to jump in and say, if you're going to Doolin, go to Ennis. Doolin is cute, but there's just a couple of pubs there, uh, by my memory, and Ennis is a more sizable town. And uh, I had some of my most magic, convivial moments fueled with some nice Guinness and some beautiful music in the pubs of Ennis, E-N-N-I-S. I've never been to Ennis, so I'm looking forward to it. My four favorite places for folk music in Ireland... Well, five. Dublin's got good stuff, but uh, Dingle on the Dingle Peninsula. Galloway is great. Doolin is famous. I mean, one problem with Doolin is there's lots of people from the continent. A lot of Germans and French uh, enthusiasts are are traveling all the way to Doolin to hear the folk music there. And, of course, Ennis. Yes. And we're going to be taking the Ring of Kerry. Oh, and last time we were there, we took the Sleahead Loop Drive, which was just absolutely magical. So that's the drive from Undingle Peninsula. My favorite yes. corner of Ireland is on that southwest extreme, and you mentioned the Ring of Kerry. There's sort of competing uh, peninsulas there. You've got the scenic and very touristic Ring of Kerry, which is great, but you've got uh, the more, I think, to me, more rugged and a little more evocative Slayhead Ring, uh, which is to the far tip of the peninsula on Dingle Peninsula. You'd probably use the town of Dingle as your home base. Yes. Well, we're looking forward to... Uh everything on our itinerary. Yeah. And you're going to be driving? We're going to be taking public transportation for the first half, and then we're going to rent a car for the second half. Because I I think um, driving gives you a little more freedom in Ireland. The public transportation can try your patience a little bit. It's just a sparsely populated island, and a lot of the public transportation goes through Dublin. So if you're going to go across the grain, and it sounds like you're going across the grain from a transportation infrastructure point of view, 
you might be happy that you had a rental car. But I think you've got it. You've got your priorities right. Uh, you know the Guinness, the people, the B and Bs, and the pubs. If you got that foundation, lace together some of the best sites, and and you've got a beautiful Irish vacation. And uh, this year is the hundredth anniversary of the Easter Rising, right? That's why we're going. We took uh, a nineteen sixteen Dublin walking tour um, when we were there in twenty thirteen, and it was just absolutely fascinating. And since then, we've been reading up and appreciating the history of the Rising, and that's one of the reasons we're going. You know, Steve, I would say that one of the major shortcomings of a lot of people's visits and they go to Ireland is they don't appreciate the rich history, and it's just from the last century, the early 20th century. I mean, Ireland is steeped in history and such a stirring story with their struggle for independence, their victory, and then their tragic civil war right on the heels of their... uh, the rising. So uh, people can learn about that in advance. There's plenty of easy ways to do that with, with great movies and, and great books. And then when you get there, as, as you've experienced in Dublin, you take those walking tours and, and you hear the gift of gab, that wonderful Irish art of conversation, uh, laced into the, the context of a very important historic uh, guided tour, a walking tour through the streets of Dublin. And it's, uh, it's a rich experience. Absolutely. All right, Steve, thanks for your call and, and let us know how it goes. We will. Okay. Happy travels. You too. 877-333-7425. That's our phone number here at Travel with Rick Steves. Radio at ricksteves.com is the email address as we check in from time to time with our listeners. Today, we're discussing your travel plans for the year ahead. And Bob's calling in from Squim in Washington State. Bob, thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks for taking the call, Rick. You bet. So I am really interested in cycling in Denmark. I'm a very avid cyclist here, and actually I, I love traveling to cities that are bike-friendly. I'm thinking about taking the touring bikes over there with the panniers and doing some light cycling around Copenhagen. But one of the things that concerns me is I've read that Copenhagen has one of Europe's highest rates of bicycle theft. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, should I risk taking my bikes or... Are there really high-quality bikes that would be available for rent? You know, all over Europe, when people are enthusiastic about biking, they have an expensive bike they keep at home, and they've got a beater they take into town and and lock up and expect to lose it. And my experience in Copenhagen, like in uh, Munich and Amsterdam and a lot of other cities, is I love to bike. In fact, when I'm in Copenhagen, I generally uh, rent a bike at the hotel, and I just lash it up at the bike rack, and it's my mode of transportation for my whole stop in Copenhagen. And I can get around town even with a simple old one-speed bike, quicker by bike than I can by taxi. There's wonderful bike lanes. Uh, It just feels like it's designed for biking. And frankly, in Copenhagen, I don't know why you'd need a better bike than that. Now, when it comes to getting out into the countryside, that's where you'd be taking advantage of these wonderful bike paths and bike roads that are going across uh, the Danish countryside. And last time I was in the Danish countryside, I just thought, these Danes, they got everything so beautiful and organized and, and cozy and figured out. And, and the bike lanes have their little own bike signals and everything is just idyllic and perfect. And, and that's where you'd really enjoy having a fine bike if you're a serious biker. And then, of course, you've got to worry about, is that going to be safe when you park it up? I think Europeans have these cable bike locks that are much stronger than your standard bike lock. And a lot of people will have the, the little lock that clicks around the spokes and then the big heavy-duty cable that they lock the frame of the bike to something solid. And I would be really surprised if that wasn't enough for you when you're in Denmark. So, yeah, there's theft, but it's not worse in Denmark than anywhere else. You wouldn't need a fancy bike in the city of Copenhagen. But if you're going around the countryside, 
if you're a, a fancy bicyclist and you want your own folding touring bike, go ahead and bring that. Uh, you could ask at hotels if you could bring it into the room with you. I, I don't know why not. But you, when you're out and about, you do want to be able to park it and relax while you're at a museum or, or shopping or having lunch. And you just want to have yourself a serious industrial strength bike lock, and I think you'd be okay. That sounds great. You know, being able to take it into the hotel, that's pretty common. But, yeah. you know, hitting some of the attractions where there are going right. to be a lot of other people, that's yeah. that's kind of where I'd be a little bit more worried. Well, there there is going to be a solid rack that's safe to lock your bike to. And I remember once I rented a bike in Europe, and the man looked at me and he said, lock the frame, not the wheel, but the actual frame to the bike rack. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And for four days, I locked the frame to the rack, and I was fine. The last day, I got sloppy, and I just locked the wheel to the rack. And the next morning, I came out, and my wheel was left there, locked securely to the rack and the frame, (laughs) and the rest of the bike was gone. And I had the indignity of walking across town back to the bike rental place with my wheel and apologizing to him. And he said, I'm not going to charge you for the bike, but I know what you do for a living, and I want you for the rest of your life to remind people, lock the frame to the rack, not the wheel. Okay, there I did it. (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks so much, Rick. That's really helpful. I'm looking forward to it. I think biking around Denmark sounds like a wonderful idea. I was on the island of Arrow, and I remember biking to the highest point on Arrow, and it it was like... 5,812 inches above sea level. (laughs) And uh, we got up there and we just thought, this is beautiful biking. So have fun, Bob. Okay, thanks so much, Rick. Bye-bye. Casey's calling from Las Vegas in Nevada. Casey, thanks for your call. Thank you, sir. My question is, I'm having the opportunity of spending 10 weeks, and I'm going to be spending most of my time in Central and Eastern Europe. And I was wondering, what should I make sure not to miss in Slovakia, Hungary, and Croatia? Slovakia, Hungary, and Croatia. And you've got 10 weeks for Central and Eastern Europe. I do. Wow. Well, Slovakia is the east of uh, Czech Republic. We all remember sort of Czechoslovakia. And 90% of the tourists go to the Czech Republic and the capital city of Prague, which is everybody's darling. Slovakia is less touristed and, and less appreciated. They've got beautiful mountains, and if you're looking for mountain resorts with a sort of Slavic spin, uh, you can find humble little mountain resorts in Slovakia. But the highlight for me in Slovakia is the capital, and that is Bratislava. And they say Bratislava and Vienna are the only two capitals that you can actually see one from the other in Europe. They're so close together. They're just an hour apart from each other by cruise down the Danube River. And apparently from one church spire, you can see the other church spire in the other city. And Bratislava is one of the great success stories, really. I remember it was so bleak and dreary, and I thought, who would ever want to go here? And then in the 25 years since they've had freedom, it has just blossomed. And today, Bratislava is one of the the great pleasant surprises. Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia, it makes a very good day trip from Vienna. Many people are just going to Vienna and other parts in Western Europe, and I highly recommend slide-tripping down to Bratislava. In Hungary, I love Budapest, and to be honest, I'm not that wild about the countryside of Hungary. I spend more time in Budapest, and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying you wouldn't enjoy the countryside, but I enjoyed the countryside of the Czech Republic or Croatia more than the, than the countryside of Hungary. When you do go to Croatia, Casey, I would remind you that everybody goes to Dubrovnik, and for good reason. Dubrovnik is the pearl of the Adriatic, and then everybody goes to some popular resorts in the islands, like Korčula. And uh, it's nice, but you're missing the real opportunity to have some teeth in your sightseeing, and that would be by going inland a couple hours into Bosnia. And I think about two hours from Dubrovnik, you can get into Bosnia, and Bosnia sounds like, oh, the Bosnian War or something like that, but really, it feels perfectly safe, but you are traveling to a city where they had a cival war, and the, the three religious communities were sniping and killing each other, and 
There are parks in, in uh, Mostar, the beautiful city um, inland from Dubrovnik, Mostar in Bosnia. There's parks that had to be turned into graveyards, and every gravestone has the same year. I think it's 1993. Uh, and there's just so many powerful and evocative memories from the war. But today, the communities are getting it together. The younger generations are, are, are mixing it up, and it's a very hopeful and positive time. And I really think it's a lot of fun and exciting and learning to go from Croatia's hit, which is Dubrovnik, inland into Bosnia. So keep that in mind. Also, the capital of Croatia, Zagreb, is a place that almost nobody thinks of going. And I thought it was a real charming capital city, Zagreb. Excellent. I think almost all of that was on my list, so that's perfect. Now, with Bratislava, is it worth spending a couple nights there and Vienna, or is it better at the day trip? You know, it depends on your your theme and how much time you got in Vienna. If I had four days between Vienna mm-hmm. and Bratislava, I would probably make it a day trip. But if, okay. you, if you've got 10 weeks for Central, I, I would say spend two nights in Bratislava because then you're situated. I always feel like when you spend two nights in a town, it's so much better than a series of one-night stands. The first night you're getting oriented. By the next night, you really know know the ropes and you step out from your hotel and you're comfortable and you, you, you have a sense of where you want to go to enjoy the, the passeggiato when everybody's out strolling and so on. And you'll enjoy that in Bratislava. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Good luck with your trip. Let us know how it goes. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye and Michael from Granbury, Texas emailed us he writes my wife and I have traveled all over the US and Europe friends are often jealous of us and tell us they just don't have the money to travel I tell them it's a matter of choice you give up eating out for lunch every day and instead put the cash toward your dream trip you also need to decide what's important to you on your trip instead of fancy hotels all we want is a pleasant room to sleep in and use as a base some of the best meals we encountered in Rome were paninis from the roach coaches all around the city Budget doesn't mean missing out. It simply means a different kind of adventure. That's from Michael in Granbury, Texas. And that comment about paninis from the little roach coaches around the town, it's so true when you're in these towns, especially at lunchtime, look around for the popular sandwich shops, and they're easy to identify because they have long lines, not of tourists, but of local workers. And these people, every day they go out for lunch, and they know where the the place is famous for their salami and cheese and beautiful breads are. Oftentimes they'll serve a a fine glass of wine with it and you'll eat it standing up or or sitting on the curb or in a nearby park. And not only are you part of the scene, not only are you enjoying some great local, you know, sandwich cuisine, but you're spending almost nothing. It's dirt cheap and it's good travel. We're checking in with listener travel plans at 877-333-RICK. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Bill's on the phone in Sharpsburg, Georgia. Hi, Bill. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Doing great. I, um, my wife and I have just recently re- retired, and um, we've pretty much traveled all over the world. And um, we love Italy. We've been there four times. We love it, and we're thinking about living there for a year. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'd like the recommendations is what area would you recommend? I love all of it. Mm-hmm. And also, would you recommend living in a city or out in the country? We'd like to just rent a place and live like a, an Italian for a year. Boy, that sounds so exciting. And, you know, there are a lot of people who have done just that. We've talked to them over the years on our on our radio show here, and you can always uh, look into the archives of our show uh, at the radio corner at ricksteves.com and listen to some of the discussions we've had with people who have bought fixer-uppers in different parts of Italy, and you can hear their, you know, the ups and downs of uh, chasing their dreams that way. Of course, under the Tuscan sun, you know, is a big uh, thing, and everybody's dreaming about, um, you know, having that magical experience in Tuscany. But there's a lot more to Italy than Tuscany. Tuscany is the most popular destination for a lot of romantics uh, wanting to go to Italy and get back to basics. You know, if I had a year in Italy, 
I think I would think of the diversity in Italy, and I think I would break it up. That might be defeating the purpose of what you want to do is just settle down and get to know the community. But I find that when you go to a restaurant or a cafe in Italy the, for your second or third time, all of a sudden you're part of the family, you're part of the gang, and, and you, you can become a, a local pretty quickly when you travel around Italy if you're embracing the local culture. And I would consider trying the experience in the big city, try the experience in the south, try the experience in the north, try the experience in the hill towns, try the experience on the Riviera. Uh, you've got lots of different options that way. And yeah. um, you might want to spend a month going around and just uh, scouting. Economic times are, are, are kind of tough, and there's all sorts of apartments that are not very expensive at all that are ready to rent tomorrow. And if you uh, found a place you liked, you could book them, and you could go find another place, and you could cobble together you know, four stops over a year after one, year, one month of scouting. That's what I would do. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that because mm-hmm. uh, we've been to most of the places in, in Italy, mm-hmm. but, and we, we only go to one place. When we go over okay. any country, we stay at one city, we get to know it. Well, and, here's uh, we don't try and say I've been to five countries in right. five days. Oh, know? that's the luxurious way to go. Here's what I'd say right off the top of my head. Milano. Milano is no-nonsense today's Italy. They say for every church in Rome, there's a bank in Milan. Uh, Italy has recently surpassed England in per capita income, and it's not because of San Gimignano and Venice. It's because of no-nonsense big cities like Milano. And Milano has an elegance that's just really great, and you can side-trip from there up to the beautiful lakes all around uh, the place where Italy is kind of welded to the Alps, just below Switzerland. So I'd, I'd consider Milano for your big city. I would consider Volterra as your best hill town, Volterra in Tuscany. It's uh, sort of off the beaten path, and it is everything you want in a hill town with a, with a wonderful uh, selection of restaurants. I find very friendly locals, beautiful history, and a history that goes all the way back to Etruscan times. Siena is just a magical place. It's quite touristy, but if you went there off-season, if you moved in, you could uh, find yourself really um, connecting with Siena. And then south of uh, Rome, Sorrento is a beautiful lemoncello kind of city where you've got a springboard to lots of beautiful things to see and do in and around the Bay of Naples and the Amalfi Coast and also out to the islands nearby. So Sorrento would be a place to consider. If you wanted Italy in the very intense kind of way, you could check out a city. You could stay in Palermo, you could stay in Syracuse and Sicily, or you could stay in Naples. But, you know, there's there's really no right answer. There's so many great places to stay. Yeah, Ravenna is a beautiful place if you have a bicycle and you just want to get a, an elegant town that is not overrun by tourists. Ravenna has its famous churches, but most tourists just zip in and out to see the churches. And uh, I find that Ravenna has a, a charming kind of stay-a-while sort of ambience to it. It's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard choice. I, I like your idea about maybe just going to two months here and two months there or something All right. like that. You know, well, Bill, I, I think it's a problem that a lot of people wish they had. How are you going to spend in Italy, a year in Italy? Let us know when you get done, okay? Okay, very much. I'm Thanks gonna, so thank much. Thank you for all, all your advice in the years. I've been you following bet. you for a long time. Thanks, Bill, and good luck with your uh, adventure. I, I know it's going to be great. I'm going to start packing right now. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilder. Thanks for studio help this week to our friends at WUSF in Tampa. Find out how you can be on the show with Rick and his guests in our next batch of recording sessions. Details are in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. 
Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.